in the middle of a uh, little Christmas series, and today the bulletin is right because I've changed things in midstream last week. So if you open up to Matthew 2, we will be working through most of that chapter. Matthew chapter 2. A few weeks ago, uh, around Thanksgiving time, I asked a question about what to do with the problem of abundance. The things that happen to a, a, a human heart when there's lots of stuff to go around sometimes is counterintuitive. When abundance flows, sometimes we get a little grabby, you know what I mean? So what happens then to a human heart when you have access to or you can wield your own authority? When you have authority, what happens? First of all, how do you respond to authority when it's over you? I mean, there's been all kinds of music written about that. You know, I fight authority, authority always wins, that kind of thing. But what, what happens when, how do you respond to it when it's put on, on you? And when you, when you have authority, what kind of person are you when you use it? I mean, I don't know, maybe you have people who work for you, who are answerable to you. Maybe you're the low person on the totem pole. I don't know where you're at as far as your work structure, but when you have authority and you use it, what kind of person are you? And when you have lots of authority in a certain place, how do you react when a certain someone with a little more authority or a different kind of authority barges in on your space? My dad always told me, you're always going to work for somebody. It doesn't matter if you own your own business. You still work for somebody. You answer to someone at some level all your life. So get used to it. How do you respond to it? And how do you use it when you have it? One role that has been throughout the ages a way to express authority is to a person who's called a king. And I don't know what goes through your mind when you think of the word king. Maybe it's Burger King. I don't know. Maybe it's Martin Luther King. Stephen King? The Lion King? King of the Hill? Anybody? King Arthur? King Kong? King Tut? King James? Anybody? What about, you know, Chris and Josie King? You know, they're <laughs> great kings, right? Um, we don't know much about... The monarchy, let's just say that. We don't, we don't have a king here in the United States of America. Um, in fact, we fought a war about 250 years ago to be rid of, free of the British monarchy. The great American experiment created a form of government not largely known. It was called an experiment for a reason. And after the Constitutional Convention in 1787, a woman asked Benjamin Franklin, so what do we have? We have a monarchy? Do we have a republic? And you might know Franklin's famous response, you have a republic, if you can keep it. Well, we like our democratic republic, and we have, in some form or fashion, kept it with all its bumps and bruises. There's tension, however, always in the keeping. Because another founding father, John Adams, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. 
And that's really interesting to me. Why is that? I think the founders who sought to build a government free from the abuses of a corrupt monarchy also saw that in order to preserve the freedoms we enjoy, in order to set loose a people, they needed to be a people who could govern themselves inside, who could be answerable to a king, a heavenly king, answerable to and lovingly submitting to one another in ways that are good, ways that are kind. The way that the framers set up this great American experiment is not, doesn't do well when immoral or irreligious people or both start calling the shots. And that's the tension we have. It could be that you could be moral without being religious. And you can be religious without being moral, although it kind of defeats the purpose. But could it be that if, let's just do a little thought experiment here. If the king of England at the time of the colonies were a righteous man full of love and humility, if he were powerful but benevolent to his subjects, if he was the ultimate authority but one who trusted and equipped his people to thrive and create and advance, could it be that the colonists would not have thought that they had to declare independence? What if the monarchy, don't throw me out here, what if the monarchy itself isn't a bad system? What if history just proves that most kings go bad? After all, God refers to himself as king, not president, not a representative of the people. You can't vote him out. He's the king. And when the people of Israel wanted a king, like all the other nations, they forgot they already had one. Yahweh was their king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says this, When they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, the prophet. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little. Matthew chapter 2 is, among other things, a clash of kingdoms, a clash of kings. Kings and those with authority at odds with each other. How did they deal with each other's authority? Let's take a look at some of the players. First, let's look at the Magi. Now, I put three kings in the bulletin, and we sang, we three kings of Orient are, right? I love that song. I really do. But they weren't kings. They were, they were well, we'll get into what they were in a minute. And they're likely more than three of them. We get three because they brought three gifts that were mentioned. But the only picture that anybody ever has on the internet is three guys on camels, so that's what you got. And they weren't oriental, as we would think of as an oriental person, either Chinese or in that part of the world. They, they weren't that. Think oriental as being oriented towards something. When you're disoriented, you lose your focus. When you're oriented towards something, you're, you're, you're focused on that. This is what this, this word comes from. These guys were probably from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, 
There's evidence from the Old Testament scriptures and other historical documents that instead of north being on top of the maps, it was east. To be oriented to the east, to the orient. In fact, there are two places in the Hebrew Bible that bear this out. In Genesis 14, verse 15, it talks about Abraham's nephew, Lot, and he's captured in war, he's carried away. Abraham races to the rescue, and he and his men catch up with Lot's captors, set him free in a place called Hobah, which is to the north, our English Bible says, but the Hebrew says left of Damascus. Because when you're facing east, when you're oriented east, north is to your left. And in Psalm 89, verse 12, the psalmist is praying to the Lord, and it says in our English Bibles, the north and the south, you created them. But in Hebrew it says, the north and the right, you created them. Because when you're facing east, south is to the right. This implies, I mean, these guys were from the Orient. They were from the east, which I don't know. I have a theory maybe that's because that's where Eden was. And all the ancient people knew this is where everything began. Back over there in the east, we orient that way. We get the word wise men in our English translations. It's a way of interpreting the word magos or magioi, which typically means something like those who have wisdom through investigation and interpretation of the movements of heavenly bodies. I prefer magi. It's easier to say. The Bible is not absent here uh, with these guys. The influence of Daniel and his friends in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was a magi. There are several places in Daniel mentioning these magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, wise men. Daniel was unashamed of his love and devotion to the God of Israel and his words and his ways. And so it's likely that Daniel was loud and proud about his faith in his God and his wisdom and influenced all kinds of other people in Nebuchadnezzar's court, in the court of the Persians, as people like Esther and Mordecai also lived in that area, they brought the word of the Lord, Yahweh, their God, to these people. And so scholars believe these magi were influenced greatly by ancient Judaism and the Old Testament scriptures. It's a mix of Judaism, maybe Zoroastrianism, the sciences of that day. John MacArthur states in his book, God With Us, the ancient world made little distinction between science and superstition. Astronomy was blended with astrology. The Magi knew both. They were considered scholars. They served as scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, doctors, legal authorities. The word magistrate is descendant from the word Magi but so is magic. They were very familiar with the movements of the heavens and they attached great importance to world events, political upheaval to what happened in the skies. And given the influence of Jewish wisdom from days past, maybe they knew scriptures like what's found in Numbers, chapter 24, where a guy named Balaam was, they were trying to get Balaam to curse Israel, he ended up blessing Israel anyway, and he said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, or king, rule, will rise out of Israel, and it will crush the head of Moab. 
I wonder if they thought about that star coming out of Jacob and wondering, is this the star? The wealth of these men cannot be overstated. Their influence and knowledge far-reaching and the expense they incurred, the personal risk that they took for livelihood, all, all this, is, it's beyond my imagination. This was no afternoon drive to the next town. This was a commitment of probably two years worth of caravan there and back. And it wasn't just a small group either. It had to be more servants and animals carrying supplies and even a detail of soldiers armed to the teeth. It was a dangerous thing to do to travel with that much money in your pocket back then. And they came to the place where the child was. Regardless of all the logistics, this is what happened. They came to the place where the child was and they were overjoyed. These men of renown, men of authority, riches, influence, power, and knowledge, they, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshipped this child. Look, other than like American Idol, people don't worship people, okay? And even then, it's not worship as a god. We just have coined that term, idolatry, for lifting somebody up that we like. No, they worshipped this child as a god, as God. They don't, people don't worship people unless they believe there's something more to it than a person. They believe this sign in the heavens indicated the birth of a king. And if they did that, why would astrologers from way far away pack up all this stuff and just go to a place where this king was being born? A king not even of their own nationality, someone of their, not of their, even their own people. Why would they go to all the trouble of just celebrating the birth of a king if it's just a person? Clearly, they believed more than that. And they may not have had all their theology lined up right. They may have been a little weird and wacky about stars and zodiac and whatever else, but their faith, they weren't even Jewish. They weren't part of the covenant people of God, but they acted on faith that something miraculous and supernatural had happened, and they saw it. They, they, they looked, they had to know, they had to find it. And they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh just in time to finance Joseph and Mary's unexpected trip to Egypt. So there's a little bit about the Magi. Who is this Herod guy? Who is King Herod? The Roman-appointed governor of Judea took office about 40 B.C. He's known as Herod the Great because he was a builder. He constructed all kinds of water systems and the rebuilding of Solomon's temple was a huge accomplishment, a favor to the Jews. But Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was from a different place altogether. Israel's sworn enemy from centuries past, and he was adopted into, he adopted himself into the Hebrew culture and called himself the king of the Jews. But he ruled by fear and paranoia and he was bloodthirsty. He killed the final members of the Hasmonean ruling family when he took power. Herod had many of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, killed. And Herod slaughtered his own family, his wife, his mother-in-law, three of his sons he had killed. It was said, it's better to be Herod's dog than his son. Safer, anyway. 
His last executive order right before his death was to have all the elite leaders in Jerusalem gathered into um, some central auditorium or, or a gathering place. And upon his death, they were all to be killed. And what he said was, there may not be anybody crying when I die, but there will be tears in Jerusalem when I pass. That last order wasn't carried out, according to ancient historians. So this is the guy. When the Magi showed up, like I said, this was a caravan. This was a parade. Think Aladdin, you know, with the big elephants and the songs and the dancing. Maybe not that. But it was big, and it was flashy, and it was, wow, who's this guy? And who, who are these people? And why are they here? All Jerusalem was abuzz. And all of a sudden, the question that they asked was even more upsetting. They came to Herod. And they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Not to congratulate him, not to give him a little gift to the mom. We've come to worship him. Imagine Herod, he's got a public relations disaster in the making. Gentiles from a different country, a foreign land, stroll into his town proclaiming a new king's been born in his territory. A territory that he's shed a lot of blood to protect himself, his own power. And these guys weren't just friendly neighbors. They were from an area known as, well, they were full of Parthians. And Parthians were people that Rome could not and did not conquer. And so we have these Gentiles coming in. We have these Parthians coming in, proclaiming a new king in Judea. And Herod doesn't know, it's not just his power, it's Rome that's being threatened. This is on the eastern edge of the empire. All of a sudden, there's a new king. What's going to happen to his little little place? He's not about to let this delegation, this mini-invasion, threaten the stability that he's worked so hard to create. The new king had been born, but it's not just any king. There's a star announcing his birth, and these guys have come to worship. It's no ordinary kid, which makes what Herod does next even more hideous. He calls the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. What's Herod's assumption? Herod's immediate assumption is the the child that the Magi are trying to find is the Christ. The Messiah, this anointed one from ages past, promised to the people of Israel. He makes this assumption. Where is the Christ to be born? And they answered, in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, the shepherd of my people, Israel. So Herod sent the Magi to find the child and do his dirty work. He pretended to be interested. He might also worship the child Listen, I, don't, I, don't, I can't overstate this. Herod assumed that this child that the Magi were seeking is the Messiah and his automatic reflex, kill him. Just get rid of him. This is the hope of Israel. The red dragon is poised in front of the woman ready to eat the child as soon as he was born. If that last line confused you, Get on the website, listen to last week's sermon. You'll get it. So in this text, we see Herod, 
we see the Magi, two very different reactions to another king. And the question that we have to ask is, which posture will we take? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your little kingdom? Are you afraid worshiping him will diminish your power or security? Do you fear that obedience to King Jesus will somehow compromise your hold on your possessions or your reputation? Have you ever wondered what other people would think if you actually followed this king a little more closely? Have you brought your possessions a little closer thinking, well, these are mine. Have you eliminated his word or put his word on the edges of your life so that you don't have to listen or you don't have to change your lifestyle? And besides you, if any of that is true, who's paying the price for your disobedience? We're not so unlike Herod than we think sometimes. Herod, as one author put it, serves as a powerful reminder that we cannot be neutral about Jesus. We can either take up arms against him or we can bow down and worship in repentance and faith. Jesus told a parable in Luke 19. This is a little different version of what we would maybe find as a more familiar parable of the talents. In Luke 19, Jesus opens the parable with a little different introduction. He says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, that ought to strike you weird to begin with. People of noble birth don't just go to a different country and say, I'm king now. They don't do that. But this guy does. In this parable, he goes to a different country to have himself appointed king. Okay, what's, what's next here, Jesus? So this guy calls ten of his servants and get, gave them ten minas, which I guess is a quantity of money, kind of like the talents, only we know more about talents than we do minas. But anyway... The, the man of noble birth said, put this money to work until I get back. But, it says, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. Notice they didn't even mention it to him themselves. They sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, the next line is, he was made king, however, and he returned home. Sound a little bit like Jesus. He came, he was made king, but a lot of people said, I don't want him to be your, I don't want you to be my king. In fact, I'll put you on a cross and I'll try to get rid of you. But he was made king, however, and he went home. He's king. Whether we want him to be or not, he is king. So how will you respond? How will you respond to King Jesus? It's easy to say we're going to be more like the Magi and not like Herod. But I want to do a little digging on this because I know my own tendencies. Have we ever said, have our attitudes, our actions ever said, how about you go find Jesus? And when you do, I'll, then I'll worship him. How about you go in and do a little work on that? You don't, you don't have plans to kill baby Jesus, but you kill his lordship over your life when you let someone else do all the seeking and finding while pretending you're going to be interested once they find something. I think you're 
fooling yourself into thinking you're going to be all in when they come back and say, hey, we've figured this out. You know, we have a great opportunity here. Let's go do this. And they did all the seeking and finding and the discovering, and you just sat back and all of a sudden they got an opportunity and you're like, eh, I don't know. We want somebody else to study and teach us. But we don't want to spend a whole lot of time digging in the Word. What if instead of 30 minutes of me monologuing and feeding, what if I gave you a fork and said, here, feed yourself for a minute. Let me show you how to feed yourself. Let me show you. Let me show you how to get into the Word. And a lot of you know this. A lot of you have taught this. I'm not teaching you anything new. But some of you just, you come and get a meal and you're satisfied for a while and you don't pick up the spoon. Later on in the week, you're finding yourself starving and you feel a little sick inside spiritually and you wonder what's going on. Well, you're not eating anything. You're not drinking the living water and you come to church and you're all, boy, I'm just so glad I'm here. Boy, it's good to get something to eat. Here, you do some seeking. You do some finding. It's completely accessible to you. But we expect sometimes others to do the heavy lifting. So we don't feel guilty about it. And we hear about the prayer meetings going on, and we're glad that's happening because somebody needs to do the praying, you know? And we, when we hear all the volunteer spots are filled, we think, well, we're off the hook. I'm glad that's taken care of. And everybody else is getting all the blessings and the joys and the fulfillment. And you say, well, when you, fi- when you figure something out, let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll come. The question is how... How do we react when the King of Kings asks us to surrender the authority we think we have? And if you're, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't have any authority. Yes, you do. You at least have authority over yourself, your own body, your mind, your thoughts, your actions. You have some authority that you can do, you can think, you can feel. You have lordship over your own, over your own heart. Have you given that to Jesus? How do you react when the King of Kings asks you to surrender the authority you have in your home or in your workplace? What do you do when the King of Kings asks you to surrender what authority you have over your finances or how you spend your time? Just a little bit of transparency. I think all of us have things that distract us, things that just pull us away, things that we just want to get lost in and unplug for a while, and that's all probably good and fine for just a second. But I went, I went ahead, and in a matter of obedience, I deleted the Facebook app from my phone. Some of you need to pick up your phone and delete that thing right now because it's sucking you in to a world that you're trying to unplug from. And I think it was beginning to be that for me. I, I had a free minute, and all of a sudden, I'm pulling this out. Oh, what's going on here? It became more than just a curiosity, and for me, it, it just became a stumbling block. I'm accountable to it. I'm accountable to you, to the guy that prays with me. I'm accountable to him, and I'm saying, King Jesus wanted me to spend more time with him face-to-face instead of on Facebook. Maybe that's you, maybe that's not you at all. If you're below 30 years of age, probably not you, okay? Maybe it's Snapchat, Maybe it's something I've never even heard of. What is this TikTok thing anyway? Whatever it is, if it's taking more of your conscience time and you're, you're not being present, maybe King Jesus wants to move that out of his way. 
I don't know what it is for you, but if, is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our worship? Can he be trusted with our obedience? Is he really the supreme, loving, kingly authority in your life and mine? We say he is, but do we really act like he is? Or do we have our own little kingdom of comfort and preferences and prejudices and entitlements? And when someone tries to lay hold on that, we get violent. We get a little irritated. And we get a little Herod going on other people or even on Jesus. Look, we don't just believe in kings. We obey them. Or you rebel. You follow a king or you fight a king. There's no real middle ground. And if you're not doing either, you're probably just sitting in disobedience, waiting for someone else to do the seeking and finding. Get in the game. Get unplugged from whatever's distracting you and plug in to following at least one little thing. Maybe it's just that one little thing. Maybe that one little step of obedience. When Jesus says, follow me, what's your answer? How will you respond to King Jesus this Christmas? Let's pray together. Lord, many of us here already know you as Savior. We've, we've said yes and we've been forgiven and we're looking forward to heaven. But there's so much of us that's maybe still left unsurrendered to you. And you know what those places are, and, and frankly, we do too. And so I'm asking that your Holy Spirit work in us today that, um, that this Christmas there be places where we surrender more of our little kingdoms to you and be obedient to you. And whatever that looks like, I pray that we'd be obedient to do it, even yet today and realize that the, the freedom that comes from following is a whole lot more rewarding than keeping our own little power stru structures in place. As we sing the song, Father, help us to, uh, to come at it a little bit more honest today than it was yesterday. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.